This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. All right, welcome to the panel. Um, I'd like to start just by uh, with a few remarks to kind of frame our conversation, and then I'll introduce our illustrious panelists today, and, and then we'll jump right into it. Um, so my name is James Lawler. My organization is Climate Now. Um, we're an educational content creation organization. So we have a podcast and video series uh, explaining concepts in climate science and energy science. Very happy to be here today. Thanks so much for the invitation. Um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC 2018 1.5 degree report, suggests that we need to remove 10 gigatons of carbon dioxide per year from the atmosphere by 2050 to keep global warming below one and a half degrees. Celsius above pre-industrial levels. In this panel conversation, we're going to discuss the what, why, and how of carbon capture and storage. Why is it something we need to do? How much of it do we need to do? And how do we know? We also want to talk about the various approaches to carbon capture and storage, their respective costs, and their business models. Um, we want to talk, and finally, we're going to talk about carbon capture and storage in Kern County. What carbon could be captured here? What could be done with it? And what could that mean for the county's future? So our panelists today are Dr. Sarah Saltzer, who is the Managing Director of the Stanford Center for Carbon Management and the Stanford Carbon Initiative. The Stanford Center for Carbon Storage Management uses a multidisciplinary approach to address critical questions related to flow physics, monitoring, geochemistry, and simulation of the transport and fate of CO2 stored in geologic media. We have Ken Haney, whom we just heard from, <laughs> and Lorelei Oviat is the director of the Kern County Planning and Natural Resources Department, where she reviews applications for land use projects and leads other initiatives in the county, including the Clean Energy and Carbon Management Business Park that will make Kern County a national center of excellence in clean energy and carbon management. Very excited to learn more about that today. Um, Sarah, I'd love to start, start with you. Um, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere has surpassed 415 parts per million because of our use of fossil fuels. The effects of this thickening blanket of CO2 is driving increased devastating weather events, drought, fires, and ecosystem destruction. These effects have prompted many governments and organizations to commit to reduce emissions um, and, and achieve net zero emissions, the sum of those emissions released and those sequestered or stored. One could compare our situation to a bathtub that is overflowed. We have to cut the emissions and we have to mop them up. CCS, as we've heard, is um, part of that mop. So the question is, how big of a mop do we need? How much CO2 do we need to remove? And how much of this mopping will be done by CCS? Okay, well, thank you for that question. And I knew that that question was coming. So I actually did prepare a couple slides with a few graphs. So if I could have the first slide, please, I'll uh, try to answer it. So um, here we have a chart that um, we haven't seen yet. A lot of the other charts that I'm gonna show we have seen, but here we see the global greenhouse gas emissions. And you can see, as Roger mentioned earlier, they're you know, just on this sort of slight ramp up. Um, in uh, 2020, they went down a little bit, but they're back up in 2021. Um, so you can see we're at you know, 40 gigatons a year of global greenhouse gas emissions. And the question is, what are we gonna do? Um, because we do know that that's one of the main reasons for the global warming problem. So the IEA puts together some scenarios um, that um, sort of address um, what we could do or what these emissions could look like going forward into the future. And unfortunately, the gray line, which shows the historic emissions up until present day is really washed out in this slide. But hopefully you can sort of see a gray line that um, ends where the other trajectories take off. And so there's some different scenarios that um, the IEA has put out there, one of which is the stated policy scenario, um, an announced pledges scenario, the sustainable development scenario, and then a net zero scenario. And so the, um, the stated policy scenario is the one where there's actual legislation in place um, and you can see that that scenario, which is the, the lightish blue line on that side, at least, um, kind of keeps things flat. It doesn't actually do anything that brings emissions down in a significant way. The announced pledges are things that countries say they'll do, but until some legislation is actually enacted, we don't really know if they will do that or not. And the sustainable development scenario is one that um, takes into account energy development in some areas where there is not um, um, access to energy at this point and gets us to net zero around 2070. And then of course there's the, the net zero one that does get us there by 2050. And so the question is how can you actually achieve some of these scenarios? So keep your eye on the, uh, the blue line and the, the darker green line because I'm gonna show you um, a plot now. Well, first of all, 
Um, before I do that, the uh, temperature um, rises associated with this uh, plot are shown now in this uh, new, new graph, this new um, thing that was just animated on here. And you can see that the temperature rise for the stated policy one um, is well above the two degrees. Um, and, and we really need to be um, achieving some of those scenarios, um, the, the sustainable development or the net zero one, if we have any hope of keeping global warming at just 1.5 degrees. So this next slide actually shows a possible way to get there. And so this is the scenarios, those same two that I mentioned before. Um, and what's listed down below, this is put together by the Global GCCS Institute. It's what, what is shown in the colors and then listed below are some of the ways that we could do it. And you see that there are a whole slew of them that are in sort of the blue colors that have to do with efficiency. And after a while, you can do a whole lot of things with efficiency improvements, but we're going to kind of tap that out. There's also a lot we can do with renewables. Um, but as was mentioned earlier, there are some land issues associated with renewables, but there's still obviously a lot that we can do there. And then there's a lot in the fuel switching and CCS and other areas. Now I'm going to highlight in, in yellow, in the yellow box then, um, and you can see it on the bottom of the slide as well, what we can do with CCUS in the power and the industrial sectors. And the bottom line is, if I keep animating, is that potentially up to 15% of the reductions could come through CCUS. And, and what we need is from CCUS is 100 gigatons of CO2 captured and stored by 2050. So this is uh, that same um, volume, essentially, of CO2 that needs to be captured and stored from the power and the industrial sectors, as was shown on the previous slide. So it's the same area that was in that little yellow box. But now I've just blown it up so that it's on a scale that we can understand. Um, and you can see um, the power um, coming in more in the future. Um, and here you can see where we are today. This is the amount of CO2 that we're currently capturing and storing, and it's barely visible on the axis. And you can see where we need to get by 2050, which is over four gigatons a year, closer to five. Um, just for scale, I've put on here um, the um, 2019 global oil production. So this is just oil, not oil and gas. Um, and I've converted it into, using the conversions on the lower right, I've converted it into kind of tons of CO2. And you can see that the bottom line is that by 2050, we need to grow an, an industry that is currently the same size as our oil production industry is today. So we have 30 years to build something equivalent to global oil production, and yet it needs to be CO2 capture and storage. So that's a huge shift that we need to do. So where do we stand today? Well, um, you see the first bullet here, uh, uh, quite a bit of CO2 emissions um, every day, every year. And our current activities sequester and store 40 million tons a year. So we're about three zeros behind where we need to be. Um, there are 27 projects up and running and 106 that are in the development pipeline, which is great. And you can see in the upper graph um, where a lot of the storage has occurred. You can see that um, most of those bars are um, sort of blue, which means they're associated with EOR. Though we do have some deep saline storage, which is starting to take off. And in fact, of those 106 projects in development, something like 80% of them are deep saline storage. They don't involve EOR. And um, so far, we've safely injected over 300 million tons of CO2. Um, so we know what, we've, we, what we know what we're doing. We've been doing it since the 70s, and we've been doing saline storage since the mid-90s. And the chart on the lower right shows what the growth in CO storage has looked like and the growth in the projects has looked like with a little bit of a projection. But the bottom line is our projects are only growing at a rate of about 10% a year. And that's not fast enough. In the clicker, there we go. To meet that two degrees C scenario, what we really need is um, a whole lot more. And so you can see on the graph that 10% is that little, I guess it does look orange line down sort of at the bottom. But to get up to where we need to go, we need to have a whole lot more projects. We need to be up between 20, 25% growth in projects. So bottom line is to achieve the, just the two degrees scenario, not the 1.5, we need to be sequestering 3.5 um, um, gigatons a year, 5.6 uh, by 2050. Um, now, if we assume a certain storage capacity on each storage facility, the bottom line is that we need about 2,000 CCS facilities by 2050. And as I said, right now we have 27. So that's a big jump. And the CapEx or the cost, um, a huge range on this, but it's large. You can see those numbers. It's going to cost quite a bit to do this. 
And then just the bottom line, if we want to meet that 1.5 degree scenario, so this is the long answer to your question. <laughs> um, this is from the IPCC report, but basically we need to invoke the negative emissions technologies that Roger talked about. We need BEX, we need Burks, uh, Biker, I think he mm -hmm. called it instead of BEX. And, um, and they're going to have to help us um, to achieve even more to get to that 10 gigaton a year by mid-century and even to get to 20 gigatons by the end of the century. So how's that? Terrific. Oops. No. I'm done. Turn <laughs> off the slides. Thanks. Um, you know, I know we, we've talked about a couple of times, it's just sort of a reflection. I'm curious how you would, if, uh, how you guys would react to this, um, about how much needs to be done in such a compressed time frame, And this feels incredibly daunting. Um, I'm sure a lot of people in this room and maybe listening to this have read the prize, uh, Dan Jurgen's The Prize, about the development of the, the fossil fuel industry. And I think one, like one of the things that's really striking about that book is how quickly the fossil fuel industry developed in the first place. You know, this really, we sort of take it as, as sort of a, uh, you know, a, a, you know, it sort of immutable fact of, of existence that this has been with us forever, but it really hasn't. Um, so maybe that's, it's something we can keep in mind that we are able to do sort of massive things on a global scale um, if we really want to, <laughs> and if it's valuable to us. And I can comment on that as well. Um, if we consider deep water drilling, how many companies were drilling in deep water, say in 1990? Not too many. And what's our deep water production today? How many companies were injecting um, um, water into um, um, source rock and fracking it and producing gas from it back in 2000? Not too many companies. And look how much production we're getting from um, that, that kind of production activity today. So we have the ability, the oil, the oil industry has the ability to, I don't want to say shift gears 100%, but to, to transition to where the needs are. And so I think that the, the industry is equipped to do this. And what do, you, what do you think about that? I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so are you, are you, are you hopeful and, and why? Yeah, I am. I, you know, being kind of the old guy in the oil industry at this point, and a couple of years ago, I was mentoring engineers and this was always a question, right? What is the, what is the future of the industry? And as I got more and more into the CCS world, I understood what the pathways looked like that Sarah showed and which ones we're probably going to end up taking. And it's going to be, I don't want to say it's an all the above solution, but it's going to be a smart solution and, and fossil fuels are going to be part of it. I mean, I know there's, there's people out there who, who just can't stand that when we say it, but it's, it's just going to happen. And everybody who's done the math shows it's going to be a part. It's going to be a transition. They're not going to be a big part of it, but they're going to be a part of it. And the skill sets are all there. There's no question. And I've, the last few years working in this area, I've, I've seen all the, all the technologies. We've kind of worked all the options and, and our, our companies are, you know, the, the CRCs, the Chevrons here, we have the, the skill sets all the way from permitting to legal, to land, to engineering, to geology, we have the skill sets to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be really exciting for, for some of our, our professionals to transition. It has been for me. Hmm. I've really enjoyed this the last few years. I was going to ask you about that actually as well. So, so you've been really focused on CCS for how many years at CRC? Um, I've been focused on carbon management for probably three and a half to four years. And I've so not long. Yeah. CO2, I, I was working CO2 back in 2010 with a project called Hydrogen Energy California. Um, we were developing pretty much exclusively for EOR at that point, but we've kind of morphed now and, and, and the business looks just a lot bigger now than, than just simply EOR. It's, um, you know, it's carbon management. And what is the, what has it been like, you know, to, to the degree you can divulge, like the conversation within CRC about the importance of CCS? You know, maybe take it, you know, six years ago versus the four years ago that you started versus today. What is the tenor of that conversation and what are, and, and how have your responsibilities and sort of the urgency of those developed in that time? It's a good, it's a good question. And it's a, it's a complex answer, but I'll try to try to relate it as, as CRC has been in a unique situation uh, since we spun off from Oxy, we we inherited a lot of debt and we struggled with that debt. So even though we were working on these projects, we really didn't have the balance sheet to execute them until we went through a bankruptcy period and came out the other side. 
Um, we now have new leadership and all this starts at the top. When you're talking about a company like CRC, it starts at the top and our, our CEO, our board of directors, our executive team are all committed to this. They're all committed to Carbon Terra Vault and taking CRC really in, in two directions now. Um, so you know, that's where it all begins and that's where it all ends. And we now have the balance sheet where we're healthy, we can execute, we have established goals, um, committing 50% of our free cash flow on an annual basis to carbon management, those type of goals. Um, we have goals for, did I lose my mic? Uh, we think we got you. Okay. We, we have goals for, um, you know, injecting 5 million tons a year by 2027. So concise goals and strong leadership behind it. Excellent. And, and what role do you play? We know you're, you have this expertise clearly. What role do you play in sort of sh- shepherding CRC's efforts in this direction? Like what, is, what are you doing? Yeah, so I started all the projects that we're working on right now over the last four years. And now we've, we've developed a strong team that's executing. So they're, they're executing the permitting phases. They're executing some of the other phases. And I continue to work on our internal emissions projects. Uh, we have one called Cal Capture. We're looking at capturing off of our power plant. Uh, we have uh, steam generators at our current front field. I'm looking at uh, how to capture that CO2. So I'm working on some of the larger scale projects and, and also still, still contributing on the commercial side as we engage with emitters technically on you know, how we can store their CO2 uh, across the valley and, and up in the Bay Area. So if you had to guess, and then we'll move on, but if you had to guess what CRC looks like in terms of, you know, carbon management sequestration in 10 years, you know, how big is this, is this operation for CRC? What'd you say? That's a really good question. And I have, I have no answer for it. <laughs> I, you know, if I'm Vicki Holobodoxy, I'm going to sit here and tell you that it's going to be bigger than our, than our chemical business, or it's going to be bigger than our oil and gas business. Um, I don't know. That's a that's a great question. I think it's going to be very well, leadership big. must have some view, right? They must they must say like it's got to be. Are they telling you that it has to be a certain size? Or- we have we have you know medium term goals. We have a we you know we're twenty forty five. We're carbon neutral. CRC has come out. One of the few upstream oil and gas companies has come out and said by twenty forty five we're going to be carbon neutral, and we have a pathway to get there. Unfortunately, I'm not in that ESG. Frame, so I can't tell you exactly what that looks like from a Fair company enough. standpoint, yeah. and I'll be retired. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> once the first CO two goes in the ground, and and they need me out there to help with a problem, I'm retiring. Right. So um, <laughs> that's in your contract. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Actually, maybe you shouldn't tell anybody that. Okay, sorry. Let's, let's keep that to ourselves. Retraction. All right. I retract. Retraction. All right. Um, great. Um, so. Um, one of the criticisms, you know, that that you hear floated about CCS is that it's very costly, very energy intensive, and I know that um, we've we've sort of already dived into that question a little bit. Um, but basically, the you know the gist of the the argument is something like if we have extra dollars to spend, and we have you know green renewable megawatts to spare, why shouldn't these be spent on replacing you know um, fossil fuel? Um, power generation, et cetera, perhaps, you know, trying to tunnel towards larger efficiency gains. Um, Why are we sure, or how confident are we, I guess, that that we should direct these these things towards CCS? Um, And what's what's the right way to think about that? And any of you, you, please. Uh, Yeah, I'll start real quick. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll point back to the abatement curve I showed. And you know, that's how you've got to look at these things, right? You've got to look at them technically and empirically and understand really what's going on. And I've seen multiple, multiple charts like that that include, you know, everything from solar to wind. And, and when you get the grid up above 50% on renewables, that bar is way out there to the right. So CCS is well inside of that bar. Uh, so I think those are the type of tools that you need to use to understand what you need to employ and when you need to employ. I fully agree with that. And a chart that I showed showed us looking at 
renewables and efficiency improvements as well. But at some point, we sort of tapped some of those out. Mm -hmm. And what was mentioned earlier was this, a study that Stanford had been involved in looking at um, a fully renewable future versus one where you had um, on some of your power plants, you had some carbon capture and storage as well. Um, and when we looked at those two options, you, you could do it with full, full renewables and um, uh, a lot of battery storage, but the cost each year was significantly higher. Um, and you would save a whole lot if you just allowed some CCS on some of your power plants. You didn't need a whole lot, but it was what you really need to have that um, clean and firm power. We sometimes have um, in January and February and December, we can have a week where we don't have enough renewables. And I don't think we want to all just turn off the lights or when we come home from work, have no lights. So mm -hmm. one of the things I'm, I'm really curious to hear your perspective on on this, um, you know, one of the things that we've been doing some research on at Climate Now is that is what happened in the 1970s when you know, conventional wisdom about energy and sort of the coupling of energy with, with GDP was sort of seen as a, as kind of this, you know, biblical kind of truth that we would, we would need this, you know, an ever expanding base of heavy industrial power production and, and, and energy in order, in order to maintain, you know, growth in, in, in GDP. And it turned out that that wasn't true. Um, and we were able to, you know, get a lot of additional benefits from efficiency. And this was all triggered by the, the oil shocks of 73 and 79. Um, and really, we had, an, we had a future that all that most of the experts at the time would have said was not possible in terms of, you know, the um, using less energy than we thought we would. So in, in, the, in that moment, we weren't that good at, at sort of really predicting what that future could be. And humans are not very good at predicting future in general. Look at COVID or look at anything that we're dealing with now, practically. <laughs> um, what's your perspective? Because I mean, we're looking at these curves that are decades into the future, and we're, we're saying things with a fair amount of certainty about, you know, we're going to need X amount of, renew of, of renewables. This is how much we can get from efficiency, but, and only this much, right? And how, how do you think about that? The way I think about it is let's just keep it all on the table. Uh -huh. it's, it's an all-in approach and uh, see which ones work and which ones make sense, but let's not cut anything off at this point. Mm -hmm. We need it all. I do. <laughs> well, we're going to come to you, Lorelai, with a lot of questions, <laughs> but continue. Yeah. So that's all we do in planning. Yeah. And the crystal ball broke a long time ago. Okay, that's what everybody needs to be clear about. We design the future now. We don't predict the future. Nobody predicts the future. We design it. And what you do is you create a big enough conversation. I just want to leave you with a thought. 12 years ago, at when you know the state of California had already said you have to get 50% from wind and solar, Kern County had done the first wind projects in 1980, and then they stopped because of transmission. The largest solar project in the world was 10 megawatts, which is 60 acres. And we now have just in Kern County, 150,000 acres of wind and solar. And we did that and brought $60 billion. How does that start? It starts with a conversation. And this is where it starts with the academics, with the science. But I can guarantee you that I personally have led those teams and done hundreds of EIRs. I can tell you what it took to do 150,000 acres to do 600,000 acres of renewables and solar, which is what the CARB report says. I say we start with Beverly Hills. We rip out all of the trees <laughs> along Santa Monica Boulevard. I think that Santa Monica along Ocean, we can rip those parks out too. Okay, you have to have everything on the table and we have got to accelerate this. That took longer than everybody thought, and that was warp speed. That was warp speed, and that was international companies. There are international companies. That $60 billion is EDF, EDPR, Berkshire, Brookfield. These are from around the world, and we were working nights, weekends for years. So I say we design the future this time. We leave everything on the table. And what it's going to take is everyone pointing to what needs to be done. And as Sarah says, one of the things that Kern County and California is good at, but we got to get better at, 
is not doing things, keep doing things that don't work. That's one of the things I just want to add to the conversation. If we find out there are things that don't work, let's stop doing them and change gears. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd love to get a little bit more into the economics of CCS projects. How much do these projects cost, cost and how do we pay for them? Um, Sarah, would you like to? I can talk about how much they might cost, not how we might pay for them. Okay. <laughs> I do have a couple more slides. Yeah, that would be great. Maybe the maybe Ken, you can chime in on that part. Okay. Um, so this this slide actually can show a simplified version of it and shows our historical emissions in California and then where we're trying to get to by 2045. And the slope certainly has to change. Um, so this was one of the things that motivated the study that we did um, two years ago with the Energy Futures Initiative to really understand what was the CCS opportunity in California and what were the challenges. But I'll just highlight sort of the opportunity a little bit. Um, so th this is the study, and this shows where all the emissions are coming from, the different sectors, et cetera. And basically what we looked at was the industrial and the electricity sector in California. And the left plot, which is very washed out, um, shows all of the uh, power plants in California, most of the big ones. And most of the ones in purple, there are 25, we felt were suitable for carbon capture retrofits. Um, and so uh, the criteria that we use to select them is in the blue box. And you can see they're scattered around the state. And on the industrial side, which is the right plot, um, we looked at um, the larger emitters in California. And actually there are over 400 uh, separate entities emitting in California. Um, we looked at just the bigger um, sources of emissions because those were eligible for 45Q incentive. Um, and the ones that we listed up, the different industries are um, um, shown in the different colors. You can see it goes from cement, CHPs, all the way through to cat crackers at refineries. Um, you can see that a lot of them are in sort of the Bay Area or the LA area, but then there are a few that are scattered around elsewhere. And so we um, put all 76 sources of emissions together, the 25 power plants and the um, 51 um, industrial sources of emissions and analyzed them in uh, more detail. We also looked at the storage opportunity and this map was also shown earlier and it's also washed out on this slide. Um, the, basically the areas in pink are the areas you would not want to store CO2. And the areas in light green is where we see there's potentially deep saline storage. And then we've also put on here all of those sources of emissions, which are the black dots. And then the um, depleted or um, depleting oil and gas fields are shown either in teal or in gray. And so there are some areas, as Ken mentioned earlier, where um, the sources of emissions are directly over the potential good storage. Um, um, but there are a lot that uh, would require transportation. And obviously the low hanging fruit is what's currently there. So um, this is actually all 76 facilities. And the plot on the left just shows how much uh, CO2 they're emitting at each of those facilities. And they're color coded by the kind of facility that they are. And then over on the right is the capture costs. And what you see when you look at the capture costs is, for example, you notice the gold bars. They have the lowest capture costs. That's your ethanol. That's a fairly pure stream. So this is right along with what Ken said earlier. Um, uh, when you get to your um, um, natural gas combined cycle, some of those actually have much, much higher capture costs. And so the way we came up with these capture costs is there's some up and running CCS projects globally. We took those as our reference plants and we scaled them for our California plants and put in some other California costs associated with this. Now, when you put that together and you add in the 45Q incentive and the LCFS incentive on the on the facilities that are eligible for LCS, LCFS. You can Sarah, put... I'm sorry to interrupt you, but since we might have listeners that, that don't know what those things are, ah. would you mind just, just, just defining you know, when we when we talk about those two things? What, what... 45Q and yeah. LCFS. Okay, so 45Q is the federal tax incentive on CCS projects. You can get $50 a ton for um, um, storage and you can get $35 a ton for enhanced oil recovery. There are a lot of um, contingencies on it. You have to start development pretty soon. And it only lasts for 12 years. And the low carbon fuel standard um, for a project that has uh, CCS associated with it that results in a uh, decarbonized transportation fuel, you can get a credit. And right now, those credits, well, they've been as high as $200 a ton. Right now, I understand they're, they're trading more like $120 or $30 a ton. On an earlier slide, though, it looked like $150. So that's sort of a flexible one. But it's only you're only eligible for it if you result in a transportation fuel that is ultimately sold in California. So when we add those various credits into those projects, 
um, we can come up with a marginal abatement curve. So Ken showed what one of these looks like and how you can interpret it. But basically, the each of the 76 facilities is shown on this plot. And the width of the bar for the facility is the emissions. And then the height of the bar, either in the negative direction or the positive direction, is either how much money it can make or how much money it will cost to do it on a yearly basis. So what you see is um, on the left side, all those ones that are pointing down can actually make money. So we think that there are 34 facilities in California that if they did carbon capture retrofits could actually make a profit. Did you but, tell them? Yes, we did actually. And they were pleased. <laughs> so a couple of them are very interested. But what you see is it's your ethanol plants. They're the ones that are the, the almost the yellow color that are really long. Then it's also some of the um, cat crackers at refineries, hydrogen plants at refineries. Um, but what you see on the right side of the plot is your cement plants and your gas-fired power plants, and those ones need some help. But they don't actually need all that much help. If you look at the axis, the y-axis, you know, your cement plants need you know, maybe $25, $30 a ton of, of some sort of incentive, and then that would put them into the neutral um, or, or the you know, not-cost-too-much territory. Um, so basically, we do think that it can be done cost-effectively. But the other thing is a lot of the ones that are in the in the um, can make money category, you know, your refineries, they don't happen to be located in the Central Valley. Um, so we also did look at, um, well, what would you do to get the CO2 from the emission sources to where we would need to store it uh, somewhere in the uh, either Sacramento Basin or, or Kern County area? And so we um, looked at pipeline right-of-ways and we looked at potentially creating some hub types of developments. And the nice thing about hubs, and we're seeing this in a lot of developments uh, worldwide now, is you gather up emissions from a number of emitting sources um, and, and put them into some combined um, transportation infrastructure and even storage infrastructure. Um, and this helps to reduce risks for companies as well as um, um, share in some of the upfront costs. Excellent. Can any... Any more on the, how we pay for this? Yeah. So <clears throat> I talked earlier about cap and trade and the CCS protocol into cap and trade. So those big, those big uh, NGCC power plants. And we do, we, we are going to need firm base load power. We, we can't rely totally on renewables. And I've heard, I think you guys came up with a number 36 gigawatts or something of base load firm power we're going to need going forward. So we need to have the NGCCs or nuclear or something. Um, so getting the CCS protocol into cap and trade is going to get a lot of that back. You know, it's cap and trades at $30 right now. So now you're, you're, you're getting close. Um, the federal government, thank you, Kate, has got some really good programs going on right now. $60 billion going through the DOE to fund some of these projects, hydrogen related to CCS, uh, direct air capture related to CCS, demonstration projects for carbon capture on power plants, both coal and, and natural gas. So the feds are coming forward. We expect the FOAs, some in May, some later in the year, right? She's nodding. She's nodding. Okay. Um, and then they're also talking about enhancing 45Q. So instead of getting $50 a ton in 2026, you get $85 a ton in 2026, and you're there. So, yeah, some strong stuff is coming out of the, the federal government. And, and the last piece I'd throw in there is, is there are a lot of investors. My CEO tells me all the time, <laughs> the investors are knocking our door down, ready to invest in our projects. We, they're pivoting. They're pivoting. You know, obviously, they've pivoted from oil and gas in, in the last year or so. Maybe they're coming back a little now. But there's a lot of investors out there with a lot of money and they're wanting to invest in, you know, if they're paying a thousand dollars a ton for carbon offsets to climb works, yeah. there's a lot of money up. Right. So that's and, how we pay. And that those numbers are definitely, you know, the, the rate at which they will increase aside, it's probably a pretty safe bet that increase will happen. So but I, version, haven't, I haven't secured yeah. $60 billion like Lorelai has. Right. So maybe she should talk. Exactly. About so Lorelai, I'd love to, I, this is Lorelai, you're really where kind of the, the rubber hits the road on all of this sort of theoretical talk that we, we've been, we've been talking about. So we'd love to, we'd love to ask you first, if you could describe, so you direct resource planning in Kern County. I'd love for you to start just by telling us, just by telling us about your job. What exactly do you do? What does that mean? So I'm the director of the department. We, I have about, you know, 80 hardworking people. 
and uh, we're small but mighty. And we do 14 EIRs a year. Just to put that in perspective, LA County is supposed to be doing lots of them, and they do a couple. Like What's two. an EIR? Environmental Impact Report. So California. So one of the good things about California is we are careful about our built environment. We want to know that things fit. We want to mitigate, meaning make sure that there are conditions put on so that our air actually doesn't get worse, so that our traffic is handled. That's also a disadvantage to business because you can go to Texas and you can build it faster. And so one of the challenges here in California is working out the permit system. So my department manages for the unincorporated parts of uh, Kern County, right, which is 8,000 square miles. And, you know, about half the population is in incorporated cities and the other half is in the unincorporated. There's a million people. And what I manage is the built environment, the permitting. And that is what the businesses who come, that's what creates jobs. That's what creates property taxes that keep our libraries open and our you know, aging and adult services and all the things that we do, right? Now, we are dependent on agriculture and oil. And agriculture has problems because of water. And oil has an evolution going on because of policies that are related to climate change. So part of what my department does is work with businesses and work with scientists and work with universities. My job is to stay ahead and design the future and make recommendations to the Kern County Board of Supervisors. What do we need to do? I wanna go on record as pointing out that we streamlined using environmental impact reports, all the wind and solar. We produce 60% of the renewable energy for California here in Kern. We did not give them one tax break. That's not what we did. This is sweat equity. We just figured out how to coordinate, how to consolidate, and most importantly, how to give these companies early information about what works and doesn't work. You know, solar install, the installers. Solar and wind. And wind installers. And so part of what we're going to be doing for this evolution with our companies and with our universities is I'm starting the first uh, there's a total of four environmental impact reports and conditional use permits for the first carbon capture storage projects in California. So we've already started one. We're going to be starting the other three here in a few months. So tell us more about what does a good CCS project look like from where you sit? Like what are the key qualities and what are you looking for in those projects? Well, I actually don't know yet because we haven't gone. We don't have one. But we're going to go through the California Environmental Quality Act. And part of what we're going to be looking at is, you know, first of all, do they have the science right? That's what any an environmental impact report is not a decision document. It includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. It just includes all the information so the public can comment and the decision makers can understand the effect of their decisions. And there are all rules about you know, that we have to handle our air impacts. So for example, here, everyone's talking about CO2. An environmental impact report in my job, I have to also talk about the air that you breathe, the criteria pollutants, the VOCs, the ROG, the PM10, the PM2.5. And it's not the carbon capture areas, it's the sources. And we're going to have to look at all of that. So for me, the first thing that applicants need to understand and our applicants do is, is that we're looking for environmental protection for our communities. And then we're looking at the economic benefits. They're looking at the economic benefits and they wanna be good neighbors, but it's incumbent on us to put those neighbors first this time. We're gonna be doing this differently than we did it in the 50s and 60s as the oil companies grew. And I think we do have a good pathway. I think we do have a good locations. Mm -hmm. So there, so there, there's a vision, which you've been a, a steward of, of this carbon management business park. And you're, you've, you've been the recipient now of a DOE uh, LEAP grant um, to support this effort. And I'm wondering if you could paint a picture of the vision for this carbon management Certainly. park. What exactly are we talking about? 
So this is based on lessons learned. Every week, two or three startups come to me with their green money and their I've all you know I'm a I left Stanford or I left Harvard and I've created this and now I want to scale up, but I don't have a location and I don't understand how to do that. Well, that is not my job. Okay. And, and they're not land developers. There's a gap. If we have to do carbon management, hydrogen, green steel, green concrete, if we have to do this, this way, it'll be 15 or 20 years before we build a clean energy carbon management industry in California. Just because it's that hard to navigate the land use Yes, and because we don't know enough about these industries, okay. then none of them have gone through environmental impact reports. I don't know enough about them. I don't know how much water they use. I don't know if they can use lesser quality water. And they don't have those answers. They have I tiny see. little projects and lots of green money. I see. So the gap, just so I'm, just so I'm following you, the, <laughs> just so I'm clear what you're saying, that the gap is really between sort of the early state of these technologies that are coming yes. to you and, and the need to produce you know, the, the environmental impact reports and really understand things to the degree that's required to enable permitting, that that's where that's the gap right. is. And, okay. and, and when we did wind and solar, there were lots of things we didn't know mm-hmm. until we actually started going through that process and coming up right. with policies. And I won't bore you with the minutia that I know about those kinds of projects. Okay. But at the end of the day, that's where we're at with carbon management. Second issue is, is these are industrial operations. Make no mistake about it. There's no green hydrogen hub that's going into Beverly Hills or Santa Monica or any of these places. These are highly urbanized areas and they have other sorts of economics. And so we need to be careful how we grow our industry here in Kern County. We need to be careful. careful. And so we came up with the idea, what if we put these new, so we have two kinds of sources. We have sources already that are producing CO2 that we need to capture. Right. And they're defer, they're diffused, I guess is the right word. They're not all in the same location where the carbon capture areas are. And while I appreciate everyone is bullish on CO2 pipelines, I'm going to be the one who's going to be going to ask, how do we keep them safe? Where should they go? And where should they not go? And we are going to work our way through that in these conversations. And so We looked at all of this land, hundreds of thousands of acres, that's next to the oil fields, and it's going to lose its water. And we're going to be ripping out almond trees, unfortunately. And while we do need to convert those into... Is this on? It's sort of in and out for everybody, but... Oh, I thought it was just me. (laughs) This is like a tip. It's like a regulator, so it's a tip. Uh, So while that's also going to produce biomass, it's also going to mean that there's not enough water to do this kind of soil, you know, growing of things. And so the question is, what do we do with that land? So what if we use that land and we actually put carbon management industries on it? What if we had two or three parks? It may not have to be one that was in the, in there. And then we had 30 or 40,000 acres of solar that could also power some of these industries. Those are great uses for that land. And they're closer to where we are. Then those property owners come, they all figure out what this all looks like. They bring it to the planning department. We do a specific plan and an environmental impact reports on these once. At the end of it, there is streamlined permitting. I know when you drive up the grapevine and you stop for your coffee at Tahone Commerce Center, That's 15 million square feet of industrial on both sides of I-5. And you can get a permit in seven days to build whatever you are permitted to build there. Mm -hmm. They already went through their EIR. They already went through their lawsuits and won. And at the end of the day, that has been an economic engine for us. So that is what gave us the idea that the best way to attract those kinds of clean energy carbon management industries is to provide a location and a streamlined permitting with conditions. And maybe through the process, we'll discover that some industries are not good fits. I don't know yet. I don't think any of us know yet. But certainly, for everyone in this room, many of you are the academics here. I guarantee you, 
It doesn't matter if it's easier to build in Texas. Where these companies want to be is California mm-hmm. for a variety of political reasons, economic reasons. They like Joshua trees. I don't, I don't know. All of them have their reasons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're solving a couple of problems that have been raised today, you know, or, you know, th- that work is, is aligned with a couple of, of solutions in that one it's uh, it's a streamlining it's, there'll be a streamlining effect for some of these new businesses, um, new processes. There's, it's also a laboratory at scale, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to kind of these, the small tests, which really don't tell us much about, about the impact. What is, what is your sense of the timeline on this project? Well, that is another one of my strong suits, which is making things happen in a timeline. And so I want this all to be up and running in four years. And up and by up and running, what is carbon capture projects permitted EPA injection, all of their permits ready to store and storing local sources, along with a fully permitted one, three, however many this works out carbon management parks. Mm -hmm. Wow, cool. And so you've got no shortage of companies that are uh, that are that are reaching out to you, right? Two or three per week that are interested. And in, and what do you tell them now? Um, some of them are finding locations, right? And you know we have um, you know other economic development. Uh, you know we have Richard Chapman here from Kern EDC. His organization's job is outside the county, but you know for the county you know, is to help them find locations. So we tell them what kinds of locations they look for, but we also tell them that, um, you know, this is coming. And, you know, we say, perhaps you should go talk to some of these companies that are doing carbon capture. Perhaps they have land. Perhaps there's a synergy here. I think the most exciting thing that I can share is the size of this conversation. This is happening here. And what it takes is all of these different industries, the university and everyone to start these uh, connections. And so that's what's happening right now. And then, um, you know, with the Department of Energy LEAP grant technical assistance, which we really, really truly appreciate, we're gonna end up with a report that shows us the characteristics of these industries which ones could scale up in four years. We're very interested in direct air capture. I appreciate that I'm in competition with the Salton Sea and that what I'm going to get is the Salton Sea's CO2, but I am very interested in making us the center of direct air capture, as well as green concrete, which we're working on already, green steel, which we're working on already, and then hydrogen. You know, LA is very interested because of the port and being a center for hydrogen. And I think that there is a relationship that we're going to develop with uh, the LA basin and the port that's going to uh, be helpful for us. And then the last piece of this is I'm working with the CAO uh, and we have a representative here from the county and trying to figure out how to monetize all this. How does this turn into property taxes? Through B3K, our economic development uh, regional conversation, how does this all turn into a better community? We're talking about science here, but at the end of the day, this is where we live. This is where we work. And what, what are the thoughts right now on that front? Like, how does it result in a better community? Well, I think that's part of the work that we're going to do over the next two, two or three years and what the universities out. are doing. And I think that we have the right people at the table and we have the right companies And, you know, part of what we are telling the rest of California, I think, is, you know, we're willing once again, you know, to be the center of a carbon management industry, but we're not willing to sacrifice financially to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the conversation we're having. I think Sacramento is very open to that conversation. And at the end of the day, People are still driving cars, they're still using gas, and we're still making things from fuel. Mm-hmm. Tony, should I turn to, should we turn to questions now for timeline? Okay. Any questions? It's me again. 
Um, I have a question for Sarah potentially. So I see on the map that's conveniently still on the slide that I believe those are pipelines going to two sinks facing the Mojave Desert in the very southern hub. Do I have that right, number one? And if I do have that right, um, which goes to the sort of Salton Sea, the San Joaquin Valley statements made earlier, have those basins been further assessed in that study? Yes, a little bit. We've um, developed some um, selection criteria that we're starting to apply both in California and elsewhere. And um, we do have some criteria for saline storage um, that we put some of the USGS basin um, information and data that we had through. And so there were a couple of um, sub-basins down in that Salton Sea area that looked like they potentially had uh, prospects for storage, but they need to be studied in more detail. There's some depth questions that we've got there. So we didn't eliminate them yet. Lorelai, I love your vision of the future. And, uh, and I, hope, uh, I hope you're successful. I wanted to ask the panel though, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about costs. Laurel, I started to answer the question about how we get things done relatively quickly. But how, what I don't hear is a discussion about the cost of regulatory risk and regulatory delay and the cost of litigation, which um, maybe I'm um, too much of a realist, but I think in California, we have to anticipate very significant amounts of, of, of um, legal action, uh, challenging all kinds of things, challenging the EIR, challenging safety issues, and so on. So how do, how, do, how, do, how do the academics think about costing in legal and regulatory risk, which is what companies look at and I think is a big issue? Can I just add something about that before you start running your numbers? You would think so, but my learned lesson with wind and solar is it's not true. I for many for the first few years, I actually spent a lot of time on conference calls with investors from around the world, Norway, Denmark, all sorts of investors in these big wind and solar companies. And they were not concerned about litigation. They were concerned about the certainty of what it end. And one of the few good things we have in California is that if you sue over the California Environmental Quality Act, there is an end. It, it's not like a civil suit. It, it doesn't go on for 15 years. It's, it's, it's a different kind of, of litigation. Their concern was permit uncertainty. Am I going to go to the county or go to the EPA and six years later, I still don't know whether I'm going to have a project. So I think there is a risk there, but I think that is what investors are more concerned about because well, litig litigation they can fund and litigation ends, but permit delays. Just on that point, what, what was your answer typically to that question? My answer is, is that I would get them you know, I can't guarantee it's approved, but we try to tell people ahead of time if their project's in the wrong place and we can't support it. We do, it's one of the things the Kern County Board, you know, they're not interested in people just, you know, forging ahead. We'd like to give you our concerns first. So most of those projects were in the right place. And we said, 12 months, 12 to 14 months, 12 to 14 months, you'll have an answer. You'll have an approved project. And then they can talk to their lawyers about if we're litigated. The second issue is, is it depends on how well you do your project and how well you listen as to whether you're going to win in court and what's going to happen. So I think that's true about the litigation, but I think the permitting delays, and I am truly, I mean, I've said this publicly before, I am already working with the EPA in regards to their injection wells for these for a certain number of Kern County projects in attempting to help them accelerate those permits by providing information in the California environment in the EIR. So at the end of the day, it is permit delays. It's permit delays. So any other questions? Good morning. We are, is this working? Yeah. Yep. 
we are covering a lot of very big concepts here that we're bouncing around throughout the day. And I have to ask a question that might help us all frame really what we're de dealing with. Sarah, you brought out some very, um, well, how can I say, attention getting metrics about the amount of carbon that would need to be sequestered. But help me with this. I, I believe that the trend lines that were displayed were associated with man's contribution to carbon into the atmosphere. Can you help us frame uh, how does man-made contributions compare to mother nature's contributions? I don't have a slide on that. <laughs> <laughs> but my understanding is that about half of it, half there is, a, my first slide was all the man-made contributions. It showed the 40 gigatons of man-made. But there is quite a bit of natural um, carbon emissions. And then there's also some land use change, but I, I call that um, man-made because it's land use change. We have natural sinks and we have natural sources that have gone on through the eons. And that was all nicely balanced. And what's happened is by exploiting the fossil resources and some of the land use changes, we've added to the, uh, the sort of natural CO2 that was happening anyway. And that is what has resulted in the global warming that we're experiencing today. I don't know if that answered the question, no? Hello? So just following that thought process, you know, I'm a, I'm a former scientist, uh, chemist, um, and we always had to have a basis for this stuff. So I think, I'm, I'm guessing she didn't tell me what Christine's asking. What I'm curious about is, okay, how big is one and how big is the other and what percentage of is man-made? And, and I don't think we can assume it's a 50-50 balance. I think that's a really important piece of information because it helps people who don't understand science reconcile in their head how big the problem is relative to time. And I'm not, I'm not in your guys' category, but that's just logic to me. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm all wet, but is, is that relevant to, to know how big each of those are? Definitely. Well, there, there's definitely been a, a lot of studies on the global carbon cycle, uh, meaning how big are those sinks and how big are those sources and, and, how, and to what degree are they kept in balance and how much do we know about each sink and each source? I don't, it's really helpful to have an image, which any, you, anybody could just quickly Google and, and pull up an image. It's, it's a very distinctive kind of, graph that will show you this in terms of oceans and, and vegetation and sort of the how much is released, how much is, is, is pulled back. Um, so it is something that exists. I don't think we have a slide for it on this panel, but maybe we should have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's a it's an important framing question. Um, but I think the, you know, the, the, at the end of the day, the what we do know is that we have to reduce to, to net zero what we're, you know, what we're emitting. Um, and so that's, that's really what the, you know, this focus is. And any way we can do it, we wanna, we wanna, we wanna do. Um, and CCS is one, you know, one tool in that, in that larger toolbox. One more question? Yeah. <laughs> This is Dan and Sandy from CSUV. So my question is to uh, Lorelai. So there was a lot of uh, push from uh, uh, new companies for oil field produce uh, water treatment for five, six years ago. So can you share some of the success stories uh, in Kern County? What happened to those, uh, those efforts? Maybe that can give us some idea how it would turn out for carbon management. So I think they are different because of the uh, health and safety issues that people have concerns about using produced water. As a reminder for those who are watching, actually here in California, in Kern County, we pull up water and we skim the oil off of it. Okay, there's a lot of water that comes up with our oil. It's very different from other parts of in the United States where they have to put water down and do other sorts of things. And that produced water comes from deep under the ground and it's already got a lot of stuff in it. And the idea behind this is that it's then cleaned up 
and used for irrigation. And so that conversation, given the drought, has gone through you know, a number of science panels, it's gone through a variety of issues. And I think what you're referring to is the fact that there are still people concerned about that. So I'm just gonna put a spin on your question. Just remember everyone, all the scientists in the room, the public has questions and they're not scientists. And you merely saying, well, the science shows is not enough for them. And I think that's a good thing. I think there are deep anxieties that people have because I just want to remind everyone that the scientists told us a lot of stuff in the 1940s that we've discovered is not true. Okay. And so that's where the public comes from. So one of the things that's exciting about this CCS is that all of you have been working on this for a long time. And so that's the whole point of an environmental impact report. We need to go through this public process. We need to go through this public process. We need to translate all of what you're doing into layman's talk. One of the jobs that my staff has is to take all this technical information and constantly push that doesn't, that's not clear. We don't understand that. The average person is not going to understand what you just said. It doesn't matter how many glossaries we put in. We have to translate this into, and I love Roger's slides. Many of them have done that. You know, Lawrence Livermore is on the forefront of translating things into things the rest of us can understand, right? And, and Stanford and others. And so I think that's the process we have to go through. And when you get questions, I want all the bad questions. I want to know every single fear people have about carbon capture. That's where the planning department's at right now. I want to know every single thing that people are worried about so that we can start to have this deeper conversation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.